0: morning, everybody. Good morning. I got a haircut. Can you tell? <laughs> now, <laughs> um, I felt like I had to say something aside from another comment that it was cold, so I decided to tell you I got a haircut. Um, Katie was thoroughly mad because I just asked for my split ends to be taken off and like this much got taken off. And she was so upset because literally all I do is run Dove bar soap through my hair. <laughs> Which apparently, based off of the face that my uh, beautician cousin gives me when I say that, is not good. But it somehow works. So, they are just jealous. <laughs> uh, this morning, we're going to be in John 8, and we're going to start at verse 39. And just as a slight way of recap, so far we've just, in chapter 8, we've been discussing, it's a series of, really, of confrontations between Jesus and the religious elite. It's just rapid fire. And it starts off with the woman in adultery, and then it kind of goes here, and then it kind of goes there, and then now we're stuck in this particular situation where uh, they come to Jesus once again, And he gives them one of the more forceful retorts. In usual Jesus fashion, they ask him a question that's meant to be a trap. And then he asks them a question in return and they've got nothing. And instead, in this particular instance, they come to Jesus and he proceeds to kind of slap them around a little bit this time not less than a little bit more like a lot Uh, but what's we're going to start now at verse 39 and let me there we are and it says they answered him and this is just after what david preached last week about if the sun sets you free then you are free indeed so then it says this they answered him abraham is our father Now, in case you don't remember why on earth are they bringing this up, it's because Jesus used more more of the father-son language between himself and God. And so last week, he said, there is the heavenly father and I am the son. And if me as the son set you free, then you are permanently a part of the household and you will remain free because the heir has set you free. And so then they begin to retort, well, if God is your father. So they try to lay down their Jewish lineage on him. And they say, they answered him, Abraham is our father. As though that's some sort of an answer. And Jesus said, well, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth and that I had heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works that your father did. Okay. And what's really, really interesting about this whole exchange is if you look at some of the other Gospels, there are times whenever Jesus says, hey, uh, why are you all trying to kill me? And the religious leaders, in very religious leadery fashion, decide to gaslight him and say, what? Nobody's trying to kill you. You are a madman. One time they said, nobody's trying to kill you. You must have a demon inside you if you're paranoid and think everybody's trying to kill you. And this time Jesus says, so why are you trying to kill me? And they don't even bother to deny it at this point. We're now far enough in his ministry. Jesus knows they're trying to kill him. Yeah, we know we're trying to kill you. He's saying this out in broad daylight. So the public even knows they're trying to kill him. And they don't even bother denying it. So there's a fun little bit of social kniving that's going on here. Is that now they're just so upset. They're not even going to deny that they're actively trying to murder him. And so he then tells them, well, if Abraham was your father, you would be doing what I do. And then he slides in this other slight little jab that they don't get at first, where he says, but you're doing what your father does. Okay. Interesting. So if Abraham's not their father, then who is their father? You are doing the works that your father did. So they said to him, well, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. God. And so since Jesus is now coming after their Jewish lineage and saying, Abraham is not actually your father, otherwise you'd be doing better things than this. Uh, they, this is hard to catch here, but in case you didn't, don't really know it, uh, whenever somebody would come on the scene, because of the way the religious structures and the hierarchy of, of the Sanhedrin worked, if a new guy shows up on the scene and starts causing a commotion, uh, the Sanhedrin would thoroughly vet this person because they don't want Rome coming after them. It's not uncommon that every now and then one little guy somewhere in Judea or Samaria or Galilee or somewhere, gets a lot of traction, causes some problems, and then Rome swiftly moves in, smacks down the Jews, and takes away some more of their liberties. And so whenever any new teacher comes up, the Sanhedrin vets them. So they would have found out that there was at least a little bit of controversy around Jesus' birth. Because anybody, I would suspect even you all here in this room who believe in God and miracles and supernatural things, if somebody told you, I don't have an earthly father, I was conceived of the Holy Spirit, like they Anakin Skywalker or something, just out of the force, you would look at them and think they're nuts. Now, it just so happens Jesus validified that claim by, or validated, validified. What is that? I've done that more than once don't let me do that. Like if I say that word again, somebody just yell, validate it at me, please. I don't want to reinforce that. Um, But he validated that claim with a bunch of miracles. They just like to ignore all of those. And so now they're taking this little jab at him to say, oh, well, we actually know who our dad is. Do you? And so he sidesteps this and said... And they also claim, well, you say God's your father. Yeah, God's our father too. So he says, well, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So why don't you understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is, is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the very beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of a sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. So finally Jesus stops beating around the bush and tells them, yeah, your dad's the devil. Which in... In Sermon Lab, which is what we do on Friday mornings when the, the shepherds and the under-shepherds get together and talk, we do that twice a week. Wednesdays are for general church stuffs going on and prayer. And Friday mornings are to talk about the sermon. And both David and I kind of giggled at this exchange because it's almost like little kids on the playground of like whose big brother or whose dad could beat up the other guy's dad. And finally it's like one little kid says something wildly inappropriate and Jesus is like, well, your dad's the devil. Like, that's almost what it feels like. They're just constantly trying to one-up each other until he lays that on them. And there's really nowhere to go from there. But the whole exchange is just filled with the the Pharisees and the Sadducees finally showing their character. Because if we remember back, I know it's been a while because we've been working through John so slowly. But back in chapter 5, they were getting on to Jesus for saying that God was his father. Because they understood that if you claim an actual like familial kinship with God, you're then putting yourself on a deified level with him. They understood the claim he was making. And suddenly they hear whenever Jesus says, oh, well, you're not children of Abraham. And then they try to say, oh, yeah, well, we know who our dad is. And we have one father. And that's God. And you can feel their discomfort because they don't even say God is our Father. They just kind of slip in, yeah, and God. Because all throughout the Old Testament, there's, there's this poetic language. It's, it's very figurative. It's very fluffy and pretty language of God comparing himself to Father. In Psalms, we see phrases like, God, in a loving way, just like a father, will do X. Or in, say, Deuteronomy, whenever he gets ready to commission them, he says, I will love you like a father. And so there's all this loving fatherly language, but there's never really this pattern of people saying, point blank, God is my father. And so Jesus suddenly feeling the liberty to do that, and then teaching his disciples, and all the people who would bother to hear him preach, to do the same. He even tells them, in your prayers say God is your father, say God is our father. And this rubbed them the wrong way because they're the holy people. They're the people who know the law. And if they're not even comfortable calling God their father, then how dare you call God your father? Yeah, there's this sort of poetic, figurative understanding he's the father of Israel, because he used, through a miracle, he allowed Abraham to birth all of us. So, in some figurative way, yes, he's our father. They would have understood that. But Jesus is, in, is increasing a whole new level of intimacy by saying, My father, your father, our father. And he's really, what he's wanting to do is, is pry up there and show the flaw and the weakness in their logic, that, oh, well, we're, we're clearly children of the promise because Abraham received the promise and Abraham is our father. Well, apparently they haven't really, you know, the Old Testament, you know, the large chunks of which they would have memorized, they haven't been paying too terribly much attention. Because if they read a little bit more carefully, especially all throughout the prophets, they would find out... That just having your genetic lineage through Abraham doesn't mean all that much in the eternal scales. Because God even said this in Jeremiah, which is a prophet all all about lamenting. In chapter 9, verse 25 of Jeremiah, he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish those who are circumcised merely, in the flesh, merely in the flesh. What does that mean? I mean, God, you gave Abraham this sign of the covenant, so we all have that sign of the covenant. It's awful troublesome to do it, just speaking from a manly perspective. So why, what do you you mean only circumcised in the flesh? And we get some clarification on this a little bit. Not a little bit, a lot of it. In Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 25. And I have written all over my journaling Bible here, so my apologies as I thumb my way to it. For circumcision indeed is of value. And here's the bit. If you obey the law. So whenever I say, oh, just merely having your genetic lineage through Abraham, merely being circumcised, these things are weighty. They're important. God made eternal promises that he doesn't intend to break. They are indeed weighty, but it's all contingent upon if you obey the law. And Paul very says, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So effectively, it's useless. And so in their exchange, Jesus is outright telling them, God is not your father, and even Abraham isn't your father. Look at your character. Look at what you're doing. Did God or Abraham do these shysty little plans to try to steal people away in the middle of the night, to try to murder them, to try to kill them? There's evidence of who your father is, and it's not mine, and it's not Abraham. In fact, you sound an awful lot more like the devil. And all of the little ins and outs of, of the enemy, of Satan, of the devil, of all the little titles that we can throw on to this enemy figure all throughout scripture of the devil. We're going to unpack that more next week because we're going to take a couple weeks, you know, like I promised you all a little while back to unpack some stuff about spiritual beings because John talks an awful lot about them. But at the very least, for now, he's saying your character aligns an awful lot with Satan. Because he was a deceiver from the very beginning. And then he's whispered into people's ears to do conniving things like murder. So this is the character that you're reflecting. And it's not good enough to just say, hey, I cut myself in this way. Or, hey, I have this genetic lineage Therefore, I must be in on the promise, right? Right? That makes sense. I'm in. I did the stuff. And Jesus says, no. It's about your heart, and it's about your character. And those things are fruit of who your father actually is. And if your father is God, then you will do as I have done, or you will express the same faith that Abraham did. And he says all of this off, right off the heels of his previous comments of, "If the sun sets you free, then you are free indeed." And we talked a little bit about this adoption language last week, that suddenly, through Jesus. And through his character, and through that kind of faith, we can call God Father. And if we think about everything that Jesus has said, and everything that's happened in this conversation, we, we will wind up with a very uncomfortable truth. It almost feels dirty, but it's not. It's just the truth. And sometimes the truth is uncomfortable and abrasive. And we all need that every now and then. That if Jesus is saying, your father is the devil, and God is my father, then clearly... God is God of everything, but apparently he's not everybody's father. Which feels awful strange to say that. And maybe it's just our generally, like in the West, we generally tend to be fairly polite and inclusive of just about everything. And so whenever we say things like, God isn't everybody's father, it kind of rubs us the wrong way. It feels very unnecessarily exclusive and hurtful whenever really it's just Jesus trying to tell the truth that God is a father, but he might not be everybody's father. But, when you live in the truth that Jesus has, and if you believe his words, And you have faith upon his completed work on the cross. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4, 4 4-7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born of a woman and born under the law, the same law that Paul said, if you can't keep it, then your circumcision and your Jewishness and your goodness and your morals and your holiness, they don't matter because you need to be able to keep the law. But if you break the law, all these things are useless. So Paul said that Jesus was born under that law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts Crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. So God inserts his son himself in flesh into human history in order to be faithful and keep his initial promises because the old covenant still stands. Jesus showing up and doing what he did doesn't supersede the old covenant at all. Rather, Jesus says, I came here to fulfill it. So with his death on our behalf and the death that he invites you into, by the way, I think sometimes we like to think that, oh yeah, Jesus died for me. And it takes all of the legwork off of us. And yes, you don't earn salvation. Don't hear that. But also Jesus invited people to come die with him. So the cross legally does for you what you could never do because Christ lived the way we never could. But the action of the death up there, by the way, is something we're supposed to follow him in doing. So stuff gets rough and stuff gets hard. Just that was a random little side note. But through that completed work, and that completed work alone, now God is your Father. Now you can have this deeper level of intimacy. God is no longer the far-off, strange, complex being we can sit there and pontificate upon, and do our navel-gazing, and try to figure him out like he's a galactic Rubik's Cube of some kind. Like it's a bunch of philosophical musing. Rather, God is now suddenly imminent with us. And he's here and he's present with you because he is your father and not an absentee landlord of the universe and not a father that would allow his children to do things like hurt and steal and connive and plan to murder, but a father who places the spirit of his very son into his other children. Enabling us to live the kind of life that He lived. Not because we're great or we're awesome, but because the Spirit can transform you. And when you hear a ton of sermons about God as as Father, a lot of them really kind of feel more like chicken noodle soup for the soul if you know what i mean like i was looking up all kinds of sermons on this stuff and i couldn't find a single one outside of the vein of like somebody with a slightly southern accent that was so warm and inviting like it immediately makes me because i grew up in the backseat of my parents car listening to bot radio network um of Dr. Stanley with that ever-so-slight Southern... Isn't it phenomenal that we can call God our Father? It's very warm and very comforting. And it's, it is warm and it is comforting because God is imminent. But all at the same time, if any of us... I don't know this pain, so I'm sorry if you do, because I have a great dad. Um... And some people have a lot of friction and uncomfortable feelings about God as Father because maybe they never had a good father or even just a good fatherly figure in their life. But even if you didn't, you know what you're missing and you know what it should be. And maybe you would know all the more what it would mean for somebody who is good and perfect and loving and who means only the best for you and wants to be there for you through everything to go out of his way to step into human history and say I, I want you as my child and then permanently adopt you for all of eternity so if you've had a poor father experience I'm sorry I really really am and I wish there was something I could do to fix it but I can't but you have a heavenly father that wants to redeem that image for you and went out of his way to adopt you. So maybe whenever we step back and stop thinking of of how wonderful it is or the warm, fuzzy feelings, and we just take it all in of what it really meant that... We could do every religious thing in the world. We could be the best possible people in the world, but still it doesn't mean anything. Even if you're, you and your family, because you're part of Abraham and his lineage, received eternal promises, I can't keep that law. And so Jesus steps in, fulfills it, and then invites you into eternal adoption. The grandeur of that then allows us to experience the intimacy and the warmth of how good it is that He's our Father. That He would go to the trouble and reconcile us to forever be a part of His kingdom and His family. And it literally says co-heirs. I don't know if you've, how much of this you've read, but Jesus, if you read Revelation, is the heir to the universe. I don't even know what that means logistically to be a co-heir with him in that. Not entirely. We get a glimpse of what it means in here, in Acts, and in all these promises of when the Spirit is in you, but I don't even fully comprehend what that means. I don't think we're gonna until we see him face to face, but my word. And there's this even maybe if some of you all have more of a green thumb than I do. I don't know. Maybe you do. A lot of people do backyard gardening now. It's Missouri. It's also kind of an agricultural state. So maybe you'll get this and maybe you won't. Uh, But have you all ever, in in Romans, Paul uses this language of grafting. And uh, I think people really try to overlook what he's just the beauty of this imagery because we're all trying to figure out everybody who reads this has a hard time of like setting aside some of the broader potential eschatological things in here and then they just want to like figure out the mysteries and they don't stop to simply take in the image that paul puts out here he uses language of grafting where he says that you, as Gentiles, people who weren't originally a part of the promise of the Israelites, have been grafted in. Have you ever seen somebody do this? Like a couple people are shaking their heads. If you haven't, you can just watch videos of it on YouTube. It's crazy. I've watched, I've watched videos of people just grafting in different kinds of fruit into similar trees. And so they'll just cut off a branch, maybe one that's getting ready to die at the end, and won't bear fruit. And so they cut that off. And so let's say I have like a lemon tree here, and so you're going to need something similar. I'm, I'm not a plant person, so I could be slightly wrong here, but I have like the general idea, you would need another citrus, you can't just slap anything on there, you take another citrus, so let's say I take a branch, a nice healthy branch of orange tree or something, and I slide it right, and I cut the notches to perfectly fit one another, and then they'll do things like wrap it, with like ceram wrap, or just something like, maybe it's something more complicated, but to my eye on the video, it just looks like ceram wrap, right, and, and then they just wait. I don't know how long. It's just a little time lapse. And then suddenly they, they cut the ceram wrap off and the two parts have completely and perfectly fused. It's still bearing oranges. You know it wasn't there at first because if you just have, you know, like it's like a turtle on a fence post kind of a thing. You know it had help. So if you come along and there's a lemon tree and one branch has an orange on it, you know something was done here. And it's evident to everybody. Something was done here. But when you look up close, they're completely fused. And it's a perfect blending. And aside from the fruit, you would never know they were two different plants. So when we see the language of grafting, Paul is taking in the magnitude and the the eternity of the promises that the Jews received. He says, Yeah, Abraham and those descendants, they all received those promises. God intends to keep his promises. Remember, like I said earlier, that covenant didn't go away. It's still there, it still stands, it's still eternal. He intends to keep his promises to the Jews, and yet he grafts in, in the meantime, he has grafted in totally different sets of branches that he didn't have to but he chose to because he wanted you and I to be his children and then he grafts them in so perfectly that you would never be able to know they were separate trees but the fruit is what tells us that something masterful was done here that somebody has interceded and something glorious has happened because now suddenly two very different types of fruit are growing from the same root and the root is still God the root is Christ what's even more interesting about all of it, because here's where the analogy breaks down, because unless they're Muppet fruits, we don't talk to each other. Somehow, us, if we're the oranges, if we're the Gentiles, and we know the intimacy of our Father, us being here, the fact that we're hanging from the same tree, and that power and that fruit... To see the message of the gospel literally change people, change the world, change all of human history if you look at it, in ways that just the Jewish people holding on to their promises for themselves never did. Us being there and hanging on the tree next to them is a way of ministering back to the original recipients. So the fact that we exist and we're here and we're oranges and we're on the same tree, we now get to minister back to the lemons to let them know, hey, Your father wants to redeem you. And if we can, and Paul even says, if he can take this branch, the foreign branch, and put it on the tree, how much easier is it going to be through our existence, just being here as a ministry to those people? How much easier is it going to be for him to then take those branches And graft them right back into their natural root. We have a father who's up to very, very big things. And we don't fully understand it all. I don't understand how just being here and existing and loving on people. Ministers to the original recipients of the promise all over the world. And yet it does. I don't fully understand what it means to be a co-heir, but yet I'm told that's what I am. That's what you're told you are. And the great part is we don't have to try to unravel and figure out every little detail of what these means because sometimes the Bible will tell you a big thing and guess what? It's not your job to have to figure out the big thing. It's just your job to look at it, to look at the tree, to look at all the trouble that God went to to adopt us. And we can just marvel at it and know how close and wonderful he is. Because when I was a kid, when I'm five, I don't appreciate my dad. Because he told me I can't have a transformer or I can't have a chocolate bar. Or you don't get to watch that. But it's only in retrospect, as an adult, I can look back at all the things my father did for me and marvel at it. And so now, once we have this broader lens, because there's nothing wrong with the chicken noodle soup for the soul sermons of how wonderful it is God is your father. But I just wanted us to take a moment this morning to step back, even though it was brief, and look at all of it in its magnitude and then maybe just by understanding a little bit better what it really means for us to be his children and to be adopted, then we can truly feel how wonderful it is that he's our father. Because he wasn't, and suddenly he is. Because he chose you. And even though I still don't fully know what it means, Paul says, before the foundations of the world, he chose you. Your Father wanted you and claimed you and made you His long before you ever knew it. So we're going to do a... I want to read one last thing from Romans. I know we've been here a lot this morning. I want to read one last thing from Romans 8. 8, 8.15 where it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. And here's where Paul says this again, as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. So if you are sitting here wondering as an individual, what do I do? Thankfully, the Father understands there's not a whole lot you can do because people tried for a long time and... Paul says they were uncircumcised. But if you don't really know that kinship, that intimacy with God, and you want to know what it's like, then come talk to some of us as staff. Because we would love to tell you what it would mean and what it would look like for you to be adopted into the family of God through Jesus. But also just live, if you are His, live in the knowledge of what all he has done for you, understand that the spirit you have is of adoption and power. Because as we've read last week, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. Free from your sins, your addictions, your poor habits, your bad character. And you might not be able to ever fully see that in this life, but that's okay, God sees it. And he knows what he's doing. And as a church, we should see that God has really big things in mind here. And that if we're here and we have his spirit, then his spirit is the evidence of his fatherhood. And we should boldly live out the signs of that spirit. Because us, like I was saying earlier, us just simply being here, oranges on the lemon tree, it's evidence to the world, and it's evidence to even the former recipients of the promise, the Jews, that God is doing something wonderful and interceding. And he is able to graft in anybody that he so pleases to. And he leaves that option available to everyone. So yes, God is my father and your father. But also understand that when Christ told us to pray, he said, pray to God, our father. Your father cares for all of his children. And he desires that his children would go out and help to graft in more. So this morning, in response, uh, we typically, I think it's worth repeating, but in case you don't see it, because it's going to be real easy to see this morning, because there's all like, you know, however many of us there are here, so you're going to see them visibly a lot more this morning, but uh, I'm going to ask Jimmy, if you don't mind, to be available, because... Literally all of your pastors are on stage this morning helping with worship. Uh, but Jimmy is one of the under shepherds. He's great. He would love to talk to you. And some of our prayer team members are usually standing on the wings for anything you would like to respond to from the message this morning. But this morning, as, as we respond, we're going to sing a song about what it means to just come because the Father's arms are open wide. So like I said, if you don't know what it is to really have God as your father, then come talk to one of us because we would love to wrestle that out with you and talk to you about what that means and how to be one of his children. And if you are his, we're just going to revel in that a little bit this morning and enjoy the fact of how wonderful it is that God is our father. But then also know that comes with weight and responsibility and responsibility. And to a certain degree, responsibility means burden, but that burden means that we get to help produce more children. who can be a part of this family and to know what it is to be one with God. So we're just going to sing in joy this morning. I want to pray over you before we do, if that's all right. I'm going to assume it's all right. So Father God, we thank you for this morning, for this time that we have as your body. I pray for all the people here, or for anybody who might be watching and I pray that, you would, um, that your spirit would settle deeply into your people to feel the assurance and the comfort of what it is that you are our Father always and steadfastly through everything. And that once we are free, we are free. And once we are yours, we are yours but I pray that the magnitude and the grandeur of that would move your people throughout the week, throughout the month, however long, to exhibit a character that's reflective of your Son in us. And that by the bearing of fruit, we could minister to others and show them how wonderful you are so that they might want to come and join as well. So give your people boldness and courage and wisdom and discernment to know how to minister to a lost world in the coming days. In Jesus' name.